This week on Death of the Reader, we finally escaped the Golden Age as we reached for the stars in Isaac Asimov's Caves of Steel. We're also joined by mystery author Solari Gentle, who is in town for Sydney's annual Crime Writers Festival, Bad Festival. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, we've finally escaped. We finally escaped the clutches of the past. <gasps> Flex, we're in space. We're in space. But also, <laughs> I mean, not really. <laughs> we're still in New York City. <laughs> Why? Wasn't the whole point? We were trying to get away from America. Isn't the point of going to science fiction is to be like escapists? And away from our real life problems in New York City. Well, I mean, even if we didn't escape New York City, we still uh. at least escaped medievalist New uh-huh. York City and uh-huh. made it all the way up to modernist New it's York true. City in the third millennium. Yeah, we've made it to uh, a land many, many thousands of years in the future. And there is all sorts of fun tech stuff. We're dealing with a world that is, you know, a possible future, not quite unlike our own. There are caves of steel that humanity lives in. There are robots, and there's a, a man with a chip on his shoulder and something to prove. Yes, we are covering Caves of Steel by acclaimed science fiction author Isaac Asimov. Yeah. Took us a while to get here. Yeah. But I'm very excited to cover this novel. This novel is a fascinating piece of murder mystery history because, mm. Herds, it was one of, if not the first, science fiction murder mystery novels. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned this, we've touched on this in a couple of past episodes, but the problem with trying to set a murder mystery in a fantasy world or a science fiction world in particular is that theoretically anything is possible. Science is leagues ahead of what it is now. You could have all sorts of, you know, solutions that make no sense to buggle the mind. And my job this week as the person who doesn't know what's going on is to figure out what kind of science fiction nonsense is playing with us. Yes. Today we are covering chapters one to six of The Caves of Steel. Mm -hmm. And I first of all heard wanted to talk about the history of this novel and how it came to be. Because Isaac Asimov is perhaps the most acclaimed science fiction writer in all of history. Probably. Well, yeah. Frank Herbert's probably got him. He's a bit close. He's a bit close with June. You know what? I'll take that as a personal slight. But yeah, you know. <laughs> but either way, those authors, you know, like Frank Herbert, they're contemporaries of Asimov. And it was this group of authors yeah. coming up in the magazine era of science fiction that really shaped the genre. Yeah. Um, in fact, this novel was created because two magazine authors, <laughs> John Wood Campbell and Horace Gold, each convinced Asimov in their own way to create this novel. What's well, inspiring. Horace Gold was the first one to suggest to Asimov that he should actually write a uh, dedicated robot novel after the success of the short story compilation that was iRobot. But it was some thoughts by John Wood Campbell that actually pushed it over the edge to become a mystery story, because John Wood Campbell supposedly said that science fiction mystery was a contradiction, Mm. and Asimov said, I'll accept that challenge. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be fun to talk yes. about, isn't it? But yeah, so this Earth has overpopulated itself to the catastrophic number, Ben, of 8 billion people. Oh no, 8 billion people, Flex. Whatever will we do? Whatever how will we, we do? How will we fit them all on Earth? <laughs> what? <laughs> what is happening here? So the, it's, uh, oh, it's the, ridiculous. the police commissioner of New York City asks our hero, Lige Bailey, to solve a murder in yes. the neighboring city of Spacetown. Spacetown, which is an excellent name. I have no problems Fantastic with this. Fantastic name. Now, let's be clear. This name is completely ridiculous in a modern context, but it's because names like Spacetown and words like robot are, you know, overused terms from 
back in the day. Like the reason why we think of names like Spacetown and say that's ridiculous, why don't you call like Moss Eisley, that makes much more sense. These made up words make more sense than Spacetown is because of people like Asimov who are like writing these novels. That's why we find it cheesy now because it was incredibly popular back then. Yeah, like people our age have grown up with words like this our whole lives, so it's completely normal to us. But Isaac Asimov invented the word robotics. Face down and like, robotics. That's yeah. a job people have now, and he just put it in a novel as a yeah. word once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the other fascinating things about this franchise is that the Caves of Steel and its follow-up novels, The Naked Sun, Robots of Dawn, and uh, Robots and Empire, broke down a lot of genre conventions in sure. science fiction and murder mystery and allowed a lot of modern novels to come about. I was reading this novel the first time through, having just kind of gone over Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan, mm. and I was struck by how similar they felt. Like, the story isn't the same, but the way that the story is delivered in terms of pacing and the beats playing out, if I put them side by side, you could probably just cross over chapters <laughs> and I wouldn't really have noticed. Yeah, well, there's these through lines through through science fiction, in particular written, you know, uh, in the, the early 1900s um, and moving forward, is that science fiction is designed to be set in a place that is not the same as our own, but we can still use it to comment on real world issues, which is why for me, um, even though this was this was written before the first like proper buddy cop movie was was even made uh, in the heat of the night, mm. it still rings true to me that the issues that uh, that Asimov is kind of tackling is is reflective of like societal issues like yeah. racism and and bigotry and all that sort of thing. I think one of the most significant things to me in the first part of this novel, and we'll talk about it as we go through the novel because mm. it, it does kind of change going on, but. I never felt like the mystery was getting in the way of the world building, and I never sure. felt like the world building was getting in the way of the mystery. Um, but <laughs> let, let's kind of give a brief overview. Basically, Lige Bailey is a policeman in New York City. The commissioner, Julius Enderby, tells mm -hmm. him to solve the crime of a murder in the neighboring space town yes. with, uh, with R. Daniel with, Oliver. Oh. With a, with a, with a, we're going to get you working with this partner. He's like, all right, all, I don't need no partners. Like, you work with a spacer. He's like, I don't want to work in no space. He's like, also, they're a robot. Well, you know what? I guess I'm doing this now. It's so <laughs> good. It's like the perfect buddy cop scene. That's like, even in the first chapter, yeah. it's just here are the two sides of the society. Mm. You're working together. You have to use your strengths and weaknesses to like fight through the problem and, and come out on the other side, which, and I, I should bring this up. I've been thinking about this yeah. because we often have, and by often I mean always have, the relationship between the Holmes and the Watson. You yes. Know? We have the intelligent detective and the slightly above reader's intelligence mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of bumbling character. So you might say, you might say, Flex, that this kind of relationship that we're seeing in this novel is not that strange for a murder mystery. Absolutely not. But. 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 The reason why I say that it leads more towards the buddy cop is because we're explicitly dealing with two characters who do not get along but are forced to work together. And we see that they're in conflict. We see that they are not coming from the same position of, of power or from culture. And we are explicitly using that relationship to explore a wider societal issue, which is, is not you know usually done in murder mysteries, explicitly with those two characters. Well, That's I mean, how I see it. That's one of the reasons that I chose this novel for this week, because we've come mm. from S.S. Van Dyne, who had a detective with a Watson who literally did nothing for the story. Then we had Archie yes. Goodwin in Rex Stout's novels, where Archie Goodwin is the detective's legs. It's a symbiotic relationship, but both of them have a very important role to play, yep. and it always feels like Archie's actually alongside yes. helping uh, Nero Wolf. And then we take the next step in this evolution yes. to the more buddy cop, where... 
I don't know who the Watson is and who the Sherlock is in this story because they each have their own value yes. as a detective. And one of the things that they comment on in this story is that they try to know each other's strengths and weaknesses so that they can work together more effectively yeah. in a team. And specifically, if you took one of them out, we it could not. This story would not exist. Yeah, that would destroy the story. It would destroy the entire point of what Asimov is mm. exploring. Because the explicit thing that he's exploring is the differences between like robots and humans, and what robots will look like in the future, and all that sort of thing. That's one of the things that I was commenting on when I was saying that this story strikes an incredibly elegant balance. For sure, in that everything feels like it has its place. You know, you know. Obviously, there's the mystery side of it where everything is foreshadowing something, and yada yada yada. <laughs> like, we'll get into that as we get further into this novel because that's part of the fun of this mystery. But I think, in terms of the actual telling of the story, mm. I'm never reading a scene and going like, oh, "Did this need to be here?" It yeah. all needed to be here for sure. I want every part of this novel to stay the way it is. And you know, maybe there's a couple of language changes that are a bit quirky, like the biblical king that he uses as a swear constantly in this. Jehoshaphat is that the one? I believe so. Jehoshaphat. Like, yeah, like, he just says it, and it's always in his head. It's, it's always, almost, in his, always <laughs> like, like he just is thinking Jehoshaphat. I'm like, who thinks that? <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of quirks like that where I'm like, it's what? Great. I love it. But the story as a whole strikes this incredibly, incredibly fine balance that I absolutely love. Jehoshaphat. I don't even know. Is that an offensive word? Can we say that? Oh, let's find out. Well, if there's a bunch of sine waves and just weet going on every time Ben's talking, that's probably. That's probably what that is. We're not allowed to say that. Sounds good, Flex. <laughs> we'll we'll talk to the censors on that one. <laughs> Coming up a bit later on the show, we'll of course be talking the mystery and how Herds thinks he can solve it. I can! This is what I'm supposed to do. That's the whole point of me being on the show. What are you talking about, Flex? Sure will, sure will. We'll find that out later on the show. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. Today, we have on the show Miss Solari Gentil, Australian crime fiction writer, lawyer, and astrophysicist. Solari, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. Now, you're in town this week, Solari, for BAD, the Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Uh, in your experience, do you stumble across a lot of crime fiction discussion uh, in the media? Do you think there's not enough? Oh, look, can there ever be enough? <laughs> agree, it, agree. It's all crime fiction, is it not? <laughs> no, of course. Um, I think um, at the moment crime fiction is in the media a lot. Mm. Um, it seems to be having a bit of a resurgence and a, re a renaissance. Mm. But, you know, crime fiction writers have always known that it's always been there. Mm. Uh, it's just sometimes disguised in other forms. And when you unpack most stories, they're all mysteries. Mm. Um, so crime fiction is a very broad church. Yeah. And we tend to devour every other genre. Such as science fiction. <laughs> even the buddy cop genre, which is exciting. Uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, The Caves of Steel definitely takes a lot of tropes of those genres and kind of mashes them together in crime fiction genre, which is Terribly exciting. Well, yeah. that's the thing about crime fiction. It's it's one of those genres that uh, lends itself mm. um, to mashing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's got their favourite crime fiction detective, classic, modern, obscure, and the panel that you are on earlier today at Bad Festival was about just that. And, of course, you're on two panels earlier today. But who is your favourite classic detective in the genre? Classic detective, it'd have to be it'd have to be down to Hercule Poirot, uh -huh. um, because he Classic. is he he set the standard, yeah, and he is the uh, the very 
very classic archetypal removed detective who relies on his intellect over his emotion. Um, so that's very attractive. Mm. And he, he set up the whole puzzle principle yeah. um, of, of the crime fiction novel. M- this modern, modern crime fiction heroes tend to be a lot more about the heart. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's attractive in itself mm. um, because the, the intellect we've seen it's it's the old part of the trope. Uh, the twisting of the trope is making your your crime fiction hero more about emotions and heart and um, ideas as opposed to intellect. Uh, so the intellect is integral uh, and the puzzle is integral to the whole crime fiction novel. But I do find that you are much more engaged with modern crime fiction heroes mm. who have a motive, who have an idea for what the world is supposed to be. They fight for justice. They have things to lose. So Hercule Poirot, when you look at him, he had nothing to lose, whether mm. he solved the case or not. He was, it wasn't going to affect him. I mean, I'm, I suppose his reputation, he had that to lose, but there's only so much weight you can put into that when you're not him himself. For sure, yeah, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Bringing that into some, some perspective for you, you're well known for writing your own crime fiction to a historical context. Why did you seek to explore a society from 100 years ago in your award-winning Roland Sinclair series? Well, because the 1930s reflects mm. current times so closely. So in a way, I have the the benefit of standing back and looking at it through a historical lens. But mm. what I'm not talking about is today. Mm, um, sure. So the kind of movements and the kind of... Uh, uh, insurgencies that were happening in the 1930s, the the rise of the right, the rise of cults of personality, um, the vilification of certain sections of society, that's all happening again. Mm, yeah. um, so the 1930s lends uh, itself particularly to examining that period, to looking at what happened, how we may have turned off that path, because we all know how the 1930s ended. Mm. Mm. Um, and we all know how it all came out. And yet it seems that we are destined and determined to repeat history. Yeah. So it's entirely different from, say, Agatha Christie's work, which was very much of its time, an intellectual mm. puzzle. Um, I think the heart comes from the characters. Yeah. So if you create your characters well and you make them human beings who who care about things, then the heart comes naturally and you can... Uh, put them in situations where they can intellectually explore yeah. the the time and the history. Oh, for sure. That's one of the interesting things that Caves of Steel, a book we're covering this week, does, which it basically uses, you know, its analogies of modern man versus the spaceman for similar social struggles that were present in Isaac Asimov's time. So when it comes to sci-fi mysteries, which is a genre intimately linked with astrophysics, uh, which you've studied. <laughs> I, I, I need to correct this. I, I started off studying astrophysics. I oh, didn't well, actually finish astrophysics. I, I diverted into the law right. after a year no, or two. No, of course. I have not been misled, but this was a tangent <laughs> to ask you how your educational background has inspired your writing. Oh, look, actually quite a lot. People are surprised that astrophysics yeah. um, has so, is such a good grounding. Mm. But astrophysics is ma- mainly mathematics. Mm. Uh, it's pure and honours mathematics and applied mathematics. And so I was subjected to a year of that mm. uh, when my aspirations included astrophysics. But what that does teach you is logical thinking. Mm. 
Um, so the old, and mathematicians will know the old if and only if structure. And that's perfect for a crime fiction novelist mm. because you have got to set everything in place to lead to the end of the puzzle. Mm. Um, and flaws in logic is what brings down a crime novel more than anything else. Yeah, that hurts. You know what? I have no comment on this. You know what? I'm not allowed to disagree with guests. I'm polite. I'm the polite one on this show. You disagree? I I, I tend to lean more towards the kind of emotional core of a novel than the, the puzzles. Like we've infamously had novels that have discussed train puzzles and time puzzles and I just cannot, I can't, my brain switches off as soon as I read those. Yeah, uh, no, no, I understand completely and, I, oh, I, and, and, and I'm the same because the puzzle has no heart. It has mm. no, Absolutely. nothing to engage the yes. reader. But it's a little bit like grammar. Mm. You cannot write a novel unless you know the grammar. Grammar yeah. has no heart. For sure. Um, but it allows you a structure in which to weave no. your heart. I think that the best crime novels are the ones that have very strong logic but also have that, as you say, that heart within them uh, that we can engage with and, and really get wrapped up in. Yeah. Well, look, the yeah. wonderful thing about astrophysics is because it is now almost innate in me to think logically mm. and in that kind of mathematical structure, mm. it means I don't have to think about making my novel logical. It just mm. happens naturally. And yeah. what I can actually put my effort and energy into is creating characters that live. Uh, in touch with the uh, the kind of writing process, I was checking out your website and I noticed you put together some some book club questions for groups looking to go through and analyse your texts. Oh, that was when the first books came out and I was really enthusiastic I, and had lots of time. <laughs> I understand completely. But, no, I, I loved looking through them, uh, particularly for a few right-thinking men. There, was, there were like 15 separate questions. Well, you know, at the time um, – Book clubs were when a few right thinking men came out in 2010, and book mm. clubs were all the rage. You hear uh, that? Herds were all the rage in 2010. Not anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants to list them now. Listen, Especially not a radio book club. That's just garbage. <laughs> I well, wouldn't listen. Well, in, in 2010, everybody who was anybody belonged to a book club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so book club questions were, were very pertinent and important. <laughs> it was um, it was a, a bit like that. I was just sort of you, you're doing everything and you're obsessed and you're you're really enjoying the ride, um, yeah. to go from wanting to be a writer mm. and thinking that it's – and, you know, I grew up in a family where saying you wanted to be a writer was like saying you wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was, yeah, you sure. know, absurd. And so then when it happened, I, that that first year is an amazing, amazing ride and you just sort of yeah. allow yourself to – um, write book club questions. Yeah. Did, you, <laughs> yeah. um, did you always write and, and put together these questions kind of for yourself or was there somebody that you wrote these these sorts of things for? Oh, I, 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 I used to belong to a book club but they kicked me out. Oh, no. <laughs> what for? You're lovely to talk to. <laughs> I was I was, I was was terribly irresponsible about actually reading the book. I just oh. wanted to come along and chat anyway. <laughs> well, all right then. And, it was, and uh, where I'm from in the country, book clubs are very um, – very important, very sought after. So you've I got see. to wait till someone dies before you're invited in because oh. they have a limited number. And I, I think they realise, well, Solari is not a serious book clubber. She's <laughs> well, only here for the wine. <laughs> yeah. If you ever want to be on Death the Reader, just wait for one of us to die and then you can take every hour spot. Well, that's exactly. what the show is named for, right? <laughs> yeah, Death exactly. of the Reader. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I'm sure that it will achieve that status where the waiting list is so long that someone has to die. <laughs> <laughs> or you allow them in. That's the dream. That's a dream. Well, this has been 
Death of the Reader, we are Flex and Heard speaking with Solari Gentil, author of the Roland Sinclair crime fiction series, among many other stories. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much for your talks at the Bad Festival. They were fascinating to listen to. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming. (laughs) We'll be back with Caves of Steel in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are Flex and Herds, and this week on the tour, we've taken you to the distant future, where the world is wildly overpopulated with 8 billion people. And technology is extremely advanced. So far in the future, it's unrecognizable, except <laughs> the fact that we just are in, like, big metal houses. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we know. are talking The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov, a murder mystery science fiction novel, Herds. Yeah. I am the veteran, you are the blind man, which means it is your turn to solve a story. Yeah, it's my turn to figure out what's happening. That's what I'm here for. That's my explicit purpose on this show this week, is to tell you how the commissioner did it. Oh, okay. Because the commissioner is the bad guy, and there is no way that you can convince me otherwise, sir. All right. Well, Herds, let's just quickly go down our list of culprits. Do we have to? Potential culprits. It's so small. So that that I can prove to you that I can pin it on someone else. All right. All right. So, in the opening chapter of the novel, we are introduced to R. Sammy. Yes, R. Sammy, an android who could not have done it. Vince Barrett. Who was mentioned once and we have not seen since. Julius Enderby. Uh, yeah, who's the commissioner, who is mentioned constantly and compared, explicitly compared to the protagonist on many occasions. Then we have our protagonist, Lige as some Bailey. Kind of, as some kind of foil to Bailey. Anyway. Then we have our Dan- Daniel Olivor, our robot. second protagonist. A robot, couldn't have done it. Then we have Lige's wife and child. I don't, they're and innocent. That's it. That's it. That's the story. So, it's- on our list of potential culprits, the people who are mentioned with more than a sentence of detail yes. in the opening chapter is... The commissioner. Yeah. I That's mean, it. That's it. Look, obviously you're trying to, you know, make me think that I've got it all wrong and that there's someone hiding in the shadows or that the cops could show up later or something, but like I don't I don't see any other <laughs> character working. That makes no sense. Because, and we should not forget this, mm-hmm. this novel, when it was released, it was released bit by bit. It was released six chapters at a time. Correct. So for there to be, I don't know how long the wait was, but for Asimov to release, you know, the first the first third of his book. Make the readers wait, let them like theorize about stuff and not have the culprit in those six chapters is insane. Well, yeah. And in the foreword of some editions of this book, Asimov Mm. does note that he wanted to make a novel that would not have the readers feel cheated. Good. So my my maneuver here Uh is either to say Uh that he is not playing fair uh-huh. Which would be to go against the author's own it word. To go against the show itself, the integral laws of this show would be broken. Or to admit no. to you that there is no other possible culprit whatsoever <laughs> and award you points for something else. I mean, I want to take the second option, obviously. <laughs> is, that, is this? Am I in the hot seat? Am I having to decide? So <laughs> I, will, I will neither confirm nor deny okay, her. okay. That Commissioner uh-huh. Julius Enderby is the culprit for this novel. It's all right. You can steal my phrase if I can steal your points. That's the main thing. However, uh-huh. if you are wrong about that uh-huh. and Julius Enderby is not the culprit, you will get no points. That's okay. However, if the culprit is Julius Enderby and you can tell me exactly, exactly <sighs> how the solution to this novel works, uh-huh. I will give you two bonus points, Great. which will catch you up to me. Okay, good. 
That's what I like. That's what I like to hear. Let's let's talk about the commissioner himself. Let's a little talk bit, about shall the we? commissioner. So the commissioner is introduced as a nervous wreck with his glasses broken, and no yes. one tells us how they're broken except for Bailey, who conjures up a scene in his head of how the glasses were broken. I'm just saying there was a scuffle. Somebody got shot mm-hmm. during said scuffle, and that's that's. I mean, that's what's going on. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I yeah. think that that's a pretty obvious thing. Very and we straightforward. We keep bringing up the commissioner's glasses. That's absolutely Although he true. Has, like, what? Either Isaac Asimov just really wanted to make a point about how he preferred contact lenses, or the glasses have something to do with the crime. Yes. I also want to bring up that we are told, not, you know, in great detail, but by the windows and by the commissioner's like way of speaking and the way he talks about this whole thing, apparently he is what's called a medievalist. Which yes, is which like, is to say that he is a modern man as we see it. Yes, yes. A medievalist is a, a 21st century, or I guess a late 20th century person yes <laughs> who believes in the old ways when there were windows and you could see out into the the real sky and elijah's like no i don't want to see out no window <laughs> i want to stay in my hole i want to stay in my cave it's nice and comfy in here it's damp there are mushrooms now the commissioner is just way too obvious some yes, of the other i agree he's so obvious that he can't possibly he, be the culprit he, I, I disagree i think that this is asimov <laughs> showing that he's look he may love murder mysteries. He may have written a very good murder mystery in terms of its storytelling. I feel like he's he's just played his cards way too quickly. Especially when he tells the he tells Elijah Bailey, not only will he promote him if he can find the killer, but he'll double promote him. Oh my god. Which goodness. he like hastily adds on, almost as though he has no authority to do this and he expects him to like get murdered during the the are you saying that he's trying to get his college friend Lige Bailey killed? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe? Dude, that's wild. That's he's, a wild accusation. He's certainly desperate. This seems baseless. No. No. What motive could the commissioner possibly have for killing a man and then trying to kill his college best friend? The commissioner, as far as I can tell, is just out of his mind nervous. Uh-huh. And I don't have a good reason for why he would want to kill his, like, friend from college or whatever. Yes. But this is a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. So I am going to, based on that, yes. take a bit of a leap. Okay. So there is a character mentioned at the beginning of the novel who is mentioned explicitly to have problems with robots. He was thrown out of the police force All right. and replaced by our Sammy. His name is Vince, Vince Barrett. Barrett. Yes. Look, let me let me break it down for you. Uh, you're breaking Vince it down. Barrett has been given a motive there. He's, he's been, been given thrown a thrown out of the police force, Correct. thrown out. He's off doing yeast farming, which is like how they make food in this world. Mm-hmm. I want to say that Vince Barrett did the killing. Oh my god! But he had facial reconstruction surgery, and now he's the commissioner. Right, because one That's of the things my theory. <laughs> one of the things we know going into this novel is that Isaac Asimov was supposedly proud that this was only possible through future yes. means. So and you think that's, that's the future mean? That's that's the thinking that I've got. Because let me think about this. Let me break it down for you. Thematically, because we have a robot mm-hmm. who looks like a robot, but is actually a man. Yes. Would that not parallel the idea of a commissioner who is actually a Vince Barrett looking like a commissioner? I'm just saying. There's something going on there. I don't like it. Also, the commissioner says, have you ever spoken to a space before? And Elijah's immediate response is, at this intercom, sir. Why doesn't he remember that? There are some inconsistencies here. Yeah, no, I think this makes a lot of sense. However, I do not think that the commissioner is actually Vince Barrett. Why not? Because, Herds, Vince Barrett would have known how to use a pair of glasses. But a robot sat in the commissioner's chair would not have known, would have put his mechanical fingers up to those glasses to take them off and punctured the lens right through. 
Are you telling me the commissioner is a robot? I'm telling you that the commissioner that is make, a robot. That doesn't make any sense. Here's the thing. Lige Bailey, Lige Bailey is demonstrated to be a man that does not read people well. He barely seems to be able to look people in the eyes except his friend, the, the commissioner, and he notices something is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what he might be noticing? Uh-huh. That the commissioner doesn't know how to have a normal human face. But because he doesn't have a keen enough eye to tell that R. Daniel Olivor is even a robot at first glance means that a lesser model of robot that a prototype for R. Daniel Olivor might have been could be sat in that chair and Lige Bailey wouldn't notice it. We you know, know for a fact... We know for a fact that the commissioner is involved in the robotics project of our victim, Dr. Sarton. Mm. And you know what that involvement might have been. Maybe he was the model for the first robot. And maybe that is who is sitting in that chair. You know what? I can't refute that. I can't tell you that that's wrong. Flex, are you familiar with the concept of Schrodinger's cat? Schrodinger's cat? Are you familiar with the concept? I've never heard of such a thing. You'll well, have to me, explain it in 20 you, words Flex. or less. Uh... Put cat in box. That's four. Close box. Okay, that's six. Is cat alive or dead? Right at eleven. Okay, cool. Well done. You there did you it go. in less. That's you did it. it in less words. That's so you're the saying concept. to me. I'm saying you're that saying the to commissioner... me that robots can't harm humans, but they can harm cats, and no, thus there is a no, dead cat no, inside no. the commissioner. I'm saying that until we rip the commissioner's skin off and right. see his blue blood or red right. blood, we won't know. Well. Next week on the show, we are going to be covering chapters 7 to 13, the second release of Caves of Steel's serial release structure. Herds, I'm very excited to see where you go with this one. I think you have it in the bag, or at least halfway in the bag, and the part that's hanging out is my part. Look, look. But it's a bag with a cat inside it, and yeah. the cat's name is Schrodinger. Schrodinger. Yeah. Schrodinger. Adorable. Look, I'm just saying, I'm looking forward to the end of this novel when the commissioner gets thrown out of a damn window because he's a medievalist and the window is a symbol for his medievalist ways. So you get thrown out of it. I completely out, agree. Out that is what cold. should happen at the end of this that novel. That should happen. Death <laughs> windows. Death windows. Go! Activate! Uh, I thought you were going to say death of the reader and close the show for death me. Death of then. the reader! We're out. <laughs>